Okay, tonight we discuss the Civil War, the Hasmonean Civil War. We left off last week with the death of the evil king, Alexander Yanai, who is seen as evil in the eyes of the, uh, the rabbis and also many of the historians because he was a brutal fellow who for 27 years ran the country as both the high priest and the king. Upon his death, he conferred uh, political power onto his wife, the Queen Salome Alexandra, Shlomzion HaMalka. She was one of only two regnant uh, queens in the history of Judah, the other being Atalia, the wife of Yehoram, who was uh, in charge from 842 to 837 BCE, as recorded in the book of Malachim. She was also the last person to die a natural death as the independent leader of a Judean kingdom. That subsequent to her, uh, the kingdom will be broken apart and devoured by the Romans, and her children will die grisly deaths. So, the Talmud says that Salome hid the rabbis from her husband's wrath, that, that Alexander Yanai had a, a problem with the Pharisees, and that he was a murderous fellow, and he would kill them if he got a hold of them, but she hid some of the rabbis. Yet, despite her uh, acting behind the back of her husband, the marriage ended cordially upon his death, that he was willing to give her political control. He didn't give it over to his children, not as of yet. His son, the elder son, Hyrcanus II, becomes high priest, because a woman can't be a Kohen Gadol, but a woman could be a queen. And so, for the next nine years, from 76 to 67, Shlom Zion HaMalka rules in her own right. Wait, but the young Israel wouldn't have accepted her Because, well, because the, 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 the Rambam issued his ruling about Sarara for women a good uh, 13 centuries after this episode happened. So, uh, the halacha wasn't yet codified, we'll put it that way. All right. She was very talented. She was politically very savvy. After all, she orchestrated, or at least according to Josephus, she orchestrated the downfall of her first husband and the murder of her brother-in-law in, in order to allow for Yanai to get out of jail so that she could marry him. So uh, she, w- she was brilliant. Good things. All right. Okay. All right. No, but she, she, but, uh, well, we're now going to say good things about her. Very, very good things about her. Okay. No. no we're going to say very, very good things about her. So, she placed the Pharisees in positions of government and reorganized the Sanhedrin to be a high court for administrative and religious affairs, which means that the authority of the king, which was uh, almost absolute in the days of Yanai, would no longer be true, but rather there'd be something of a cooperative leadership with the legislative body that has some say over what actually happens and has a determining influence over matters of religious law. So, from that perspective, she did good. Um, why did this happen and when did this happen? So it actually, it was, there was a deal reached at the earliest moments of her reign as a condition for the Pharisees to agree to give Yanai a royal funeral, she had to confer some power upon them. So moments after the king died, she's already shifting the, uh, the allegiances of the government towards the other faction, away from the Sadducees towards the Pharisees. Why does she do this? Out of concern that if the popular Pharisees do not participate in the royal funeral or refuse to allow for a royal funeral, it could lead to the dissolution of the entire Hasmonean monarchy. 
I mean, if you're going to send a, a, a dead king off to uh, to an ignominious uh, grave with, with a you know potter's field, then what does that say about your whole dynasty that it's corrupt and illegitimate? So she needed the Prushim, the Pharisees, to go along with the, the ceremonial aspect of his Leviah. And thus, they got power early on. Um, Hyrcanus II, her elder son, was favored by the Pharisees that religiously he was more inclined toward their position than he was towards the Sadducees. And he was made the high priest. During the next nine years, uh, many interpretations and... Uh, Understandings of the halakha that are purely Pharisaic, uh, meaning non-biblical in nature. They don't appear in the Torah, but they are recognized as the halakha of Moshe Sinai or an oral tradition, became uh, part of the accepted law. And the Sadducees, who rejected those things, felt like a persecuted class. They petitioned uh, Salome Alexandra for protection, which she provided, giving them safe places outside of Jerusalem. So, strategically, the Sadducees were being shifted away away from the capital city, where all the action is happening, towards the periphery. But their protector is Aristobulus II, her other son, her younger son, who is aligning himself with the Sadducees and taking them to fortified strongholds along the borders of the country. So on the one hand, they're being moved away from Jerusalem, which, is, which means they're politically less important. But on the other hand, if we anticipate a coming civil war, it's good to hold strategic forts all along the borders of the state. So the Sadducees are out of power, but they are um, careful to place themselves in sensitive positions for an eventual takeover. Okay. Uh, they are a, a dissident faction with a prince who sides with them and a prince who is eager to assert his own control. Even though he's not in line for the throne, Hyrcanus is in line for the throne, Aristobulus thinks to himself, well, I'm going to grab it w- whether they like it or not. He's a, an aggressive figure. We'll see, Hyrcanus is not nearly as aggressive as Aristobulus. He's sort of passive and weak. Yeah. Okay, so Salome is in charge from 76 BCE to 67, and the Pharisees begin to take control of the government right away, 76, 75, and uh, in the, in the uh, late 70s, around 71, 70, you have Aristobulus already showing an inclination towards rebellion, that he doesn't like his mother's rule, he would like to overthrow her, and certainly upon her death, he's not going to countenance the uh, political control uh, by his brother. Okay, so... Yes. So, Hyrcanus, well, Hyrcanus was his name. Um, some argued his name was Yohanan Hyrcanus, like his grandfather, and Aristobulus was Judah Aristobulus, Yehuda Aristobulus, like uh, his uncle. Okay. Um, Salome ordered the fortification of border towns so as to dissuade neighboring monarchs from attacking a female-led government. The theory being that if a woman is in control of the country, how strong could the country possibly be? Uh, on the, the, the sexism of antiquity, you would figure it's a, it's a weak state if it has only a queen and not a king. So realizing that threat, she beefs up the border security. Um, the only real threat was the Armenian king Tigranes, who in the year 70 BCE threatened to invade but didn't actually pull the trigger. 
Salome was respected uh, um, abroad, or she re- achieved respect for Judea abroad through her savvy diplomacy, something that Yanai, with all his wars, never uh, achieved. That Yanai was always fighting, and sometimes losing. Didn't win all of his wars. And for that, he almost lost the kingdom on several occasions. Um, but he, he had this aggressive posture towards the outside world in the hopes of being recognized as a, a, a great world power, strong, but he never really succeeded. Salome Alexandria was respected for her skills, for putting Judea on a proper footing. Um, and now Aristobulus II, who, as the younger son and leader of a dissident faction, was not really trusted by his mother or his, bro- or his brother, was sent to fight the only aggressive war of expansion during Salome's reign. That if, if John Hyrcanus I had many wars of expansion, and Alexander Yana had many wars of expansion, and the borders of the Judean state are always getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, during Salome's reign... They didn't, they didn't focus on that. It was more of um, retaining what you already have and reorganizing the government uh, internally. But they did have one war of expansion, that against Damascus, and they lost. They lost to, uh, to Ptolemy. Why? Why was this war undertaken? Not because there was any real desire to conquer more territory to the north and to the east. Basically, the borders were as, as large as they were going to get. The point was to keep Aristobulus out of the country. Since he's a troublemaking son, well, let him fight a, a, on a foreign adventure rather than cause trouble closer to home. It was, a, again, a savvy move by Salome. Okay. Um, there was great prosperity during her reign, which the Talmud attributes to the observance of the Torah at that time. So we're going to say nice things about her. The Gemara in Tana says the following. Um, what does that mean? I will give you rain in its proper time. So that's the bracha before the tochacha. That if you're good, you'll get rain in the proper time. And if you're bad, uh, no rain for you. So what does it mean in the proper time? Belele riviot uvalele shabbatot. On Tuesday night and Friday night. So the night going into Wednesday and the night going into Shabbos. Why those nights? Because uh, especially uh, auspicious. I mean, and Shabbos, no, uh, nobody's out you know, partying, everybody's home. So if it snows on Shabbos, it rains on Shabbos, or snows on Shabbos, it's Nishkeferlech. So, Shekem Matzina Bimei Shimon Ben Shatach. All right? So, thus we find in the days of Shimon Ben Shatach, who is purportedly the brother of Salome Alexandra. Sheyardu lehem Geshomim Belelej Reviot Velelej Shabbatot. And in that generation, it rained on, on uh, Friday night. To the point that the wheat kernels were the size of kidneys. And the barley grains were the size of, of dates, uh, of, of, of olives. And the lentils were the size of gold coins. And they... Uh, put a bundle of this stuff together and put it in the National Archives as a reminder for the generations that see how terrible it is to sin, what, what sin causes, because if not for sin, if people had been pious in every generation, then the, the bounty of the land of Israel would be this amazing in every generation. But it's only because we don't behave so well, and only in that generation were they especially pious, that they merited to have such uh, huge uh, produce, whereas we have the measly uh, sized grains that we have. 
Okay, so this is the Talmud's way of saying they were very, very from in that generation. It should come as no surprise that the Talmud would exaggerate the, uh, the bounty of the, the reign of Salome because since the Pharisees were granted control of the government, which was a rarity in Second Temple times, the, the successors to the rabbis, the, sex, the successors to the Pharisees, who are the rabbis, would remember that period uh, with you know, fondness, uh, as a golden age of the past. Okay. So, in the year 67, upon Salome Alexandra's death, we have a struggle for power. Truth is, Aristobulus was planning on, on uh, having a coup against his mother, but she died before he, he was able to put it into practice. And so, who takes over? Well, Hyrcanus II had been serving as high priest since his father's death in 76, and then, upon his mother's death, would serve simultaneously as king and high priest for the next three months in 67. But in the, in the waning days of Salome's rule, the brothers were jockeying for position. Hyrcanus was closer in religious and, and, and political mentality to his mother and to the Pharisees, while Aristobulus inherited his father's approach to Judaism and to the world. He was more of a Hellenist and a warrior who was looking to, you know, to fight, to pick fights, and to expand borders, and to assert a Jewish nationalism, not to assert Judaism. Uh, Aristobulus came out in open rebellion, aided by Sadducean supporters, and the battle took place near Jericho, why Jericho? So we've mentioned in the past the city of Jericho. Who was, who was uh, shot and killed there? So Simon, the last of the Maccabean brothers, was assassinated by his son-in-law Talmi at the palace at Jericho because the Hasmoneans owned, as, through private ownership, most of that city and the nearby plains uh, and the, the lucrative balsam plantations. Uh, so at Jericho you have this war, Many of Hyrcanus's mercenary soldiers defected to Aristobulus' side and thereby handed Aristobulus a victory. So you have two brothers fighting, hired armies. Who's the better choice? Who knows? I mean, the average soldier has no way of knowing who is the preferred candidate. But, for whatever reason, there are a lot of defections and Aristobulus wins. Upon winning, so Aristobulus can choose what to do with the loser. What do you normally do to the loser? Kill. Kill. All right. So the the Hasmoneans, as vicious as they were in later years, tended not to kill members of their own family. And so Hyrcanus lives. In fact, Hyrcanus will outlive Aristobulus by a fairly long period of time. Uh, he'll live to the year 30. And we're now in the year 67. So, the loser has to cut a deal with the winner. Well, Hyrcanus flees to the, the, the Jerusalem citadel, and Aristobulus chases after him from Jericho towards Jerusalem. Aristobulus captures the temple, and Hyrcanus is forced to surrender. And the terms of the peace deal are that Aristobulus becomes the king and the high priest. So, both positions that Hyrcanus previously had are now going to go to Aristobulus. But Hyrcanus can keep the revenue of the latter office of high priest. So, what kind of revenue is there by being high priest? What does the Mishnah say in the first parak of Yoma? Okay, so, Kohen Gadol, Notel Chelek Barosh. If you remember from, the, from, the, from, the, from Yom Kippur, how the high priest would, um, 
would do the service on Yom Kippur in its entirety. Nobody else would do it. And for a week before the service, he practiced and would do most of the daily uh, sacrifice, uh, even though on an average day, the rest of the year, it was divided up by lottery between the, those Kohanim who were serving in that Mishmar, that Kohanic watch. But the lottery system could at any point in time, on any day of the year, be preempted by a high priest who would like to take upon himself to do a certain aspect of the service or to grab uh, sacrificial meats for himself. So the Kohen Gadol can upset the, uh, the, the equitable distribution whenever he wants. There are, there are gains to be made financially from being the Kohen Gadol. So Aristobulus, not especially interested in the religious functioning of the state, more the Hellenistic warrior, says you want to take the, some of the revenues from the Beis HaMikdash, fine. But I'm the Kohen Gadol and I am the king. It's a deal. If you were Hyrcanus... Would you be satisfied long-term with this deal? So the truth is, he was satisfied. He's alive. He gets money. He's still an important Jew. Maybe the second most important Jew in the country. And as a weakling, and as a very, basically a passive guy for the most part, he could have made his peace with this and lived out his life as a, like a B-level, B-level celebrity. But he was easily manipulated. And who does the manipulating? No, no, we're not going to blame the ladies this time. No, he's manipulated by Antipater. Antipater is the governor of Idumea. Antipater's father's name was Antipas, which is also the name of a city in, in ancient Israel. And Antipas was, was forcibly Judaized, was forcibly converted to Judaism in the days of John Hyrcanus. And did not have any allegiance whatsoever to Judaism, or for that matter to the Jewish state had an allegiance only to himself. So that was Antipas, and his son Antipater inherited the office of governor of Idumea. And the Idumeans, not particularly liking the Jews, would like to see Judea destroyed. Not destroyed in the sense of the Jews getting killed, but in the sense of Idumea reversing the trend of political domination and themselves coming to dominate the Jews through chicanery, through political and diplomatic chicanery. So what does... Uh, Antipater do. He realizes that Aristobulus might fire him as governor of the southern province of Idumea. Um, because Aristobulus, being the warrior type and the hands-on administrator and leader, could easily uh, eliminate those who held hereditary positions in the provinces. Whereas Hyrcanus who is very laid back and passive, would rely upon um, regional governors to do the actual governing and to, be, and to manipulate him. So he figures, let me do whatever I can to bring Hyrcanus back into power and oust Aristobulus from the seat of, uh, 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 of the king. And what he does is to convince Hyrcanus that there is a plot to assassinate him emanating from on high, from the king, that his brother wants to assassinate him. Was this true? Probably not. I made it up. Just like Salome Alexandra made up the, the plot that, that Antigonus was going to kill uh, uh, Judah Aristobulus. Sometimes the best way to, to achieve um, uh, chaos is to falsely accuse someone of plotting an assassination. Not to actually do an assassination, but to falsely accuse someone of plotting an assassination. Okay? So Hyrcanus, thinking his life is in danger, runs away and takes refuge with Aritas, the king of the Nabataeans.
And Antipater then promises Aritas that if he supports Hyrcanus' request to turn to power, that Judea will relinquish certain Arabian towns and cities on the borders of Nabataea that had been previously conquered by the Hasmoneans. This is a key point. All those uh, petty kingdoms, those vassal states that were surrounding Judea had lost territory to the aggressive warrior kings of the previous two generations, of the Jews, of the Hasmoneans. But when you lose territory to an aggressive Hasmonean king, do you chalk it up as an eternal loss? Or do you, do you think to yourself, oh, I'm going to get it back one day? Not everybody thinks, I'm going to get it back one day. So here's their chance. The Nabataeans could recover lost territory on the eastern side of the Jordan River. All they've got to do is fight for Hyrcanus, and Antipater will make sure that the, the territories are reassigned uh, to, to Nabataea. Okay, so Hyrcanus uh, and the, the Nabataeans muster an army of 50,000 men, almost all of them non-Jews, and they lay a siege around Jerusalem. This siege lasts seven months. The attacking army was guilty of several, of two very famous sins. The, the, the army of Hyrcanus, basically an army of, 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 of Arabs and Nabataeans, fighting against Aristobulus's people in Jerusalem, did two very bad things. Who knows what they are? Right. <laughs> no, in this case, the, the, the women are not involved at all. Okay, so the first one appears in Josephus, and there's a version of it that is similar, but not exactly the same thing. It talks about different people in the rabbinic literature, but I'll read you the Josephus version. Now there was one whose name was Onias. What's the Hebrew for Onias? Chonyo, or Choni. Choni ha? Ma'agal. Correct. Choni the circle maker. A righteous man he was and beloved of God, who in a certain drought had prayed to God to put an end to the intense heat, and whose prayers God heard and had sent them rain. So that's the other story about Chani, that he, he drew a circle in the ground, and he said, I'm not leaving this circle until the rains come down, and the rain came a little drip, drip, and said, it's not enough, God, we want more, and then it was a hurricane, he said, it's too much, God, we want a little bit less, and, and Shimon ben Shatach said to him, Chani, you can't talk to God that way, you can't start demanding things, I want this, I want that, I want it this way, just in between, you know, medium rare, you can't do that, I, I would put you in Chayrim, but I'm not going to put you in Chayrim, because it looks like God's listening. So, it goes to show you that God loves you, so who am I to, to, to interfere? Right, that's the, the rabbinic version of the Choni story. But Josephus knows a Choni story, and says that he was a righteous man, God heard his prayers. And then, this man had hid himself, because he saw that this sedition would last a great while. Meaning, the civil war was going on and on, and not ending very quickly. However, they brought him to the Jewish camp, and desired that as by his prayers he had once put an end to the drought, so he would in a like manner make imprecations on Aristobulus and those of his faction. So basically the besieging army on the outside wants Choni to curse Aristobulus and the guys on the inside that the city should fall, that the siege should be successful, and they should make a breach in the wall. Okay? And when upon his refusal and the excuses that he made, he was still by multitude compelled to speak. So they forced his hand. He, they wouldn't let him just do nothing. He stood up in the middle of them and said, quote, O God, King of the whole world, Ribono Shalom, since those that stand now with me are thy people, and those that are besieged are also thy priests and thy people, so Elu Elu, these are Jews and these are Jews. I beseech thee that thou will neither hearken to the prayers of those against these, nor these against those. Basically, don't listen to anyone's davening, just 
you know, leave it alone. God, don't, don't, pick, don't pick a side. I'm not picking sides. You, God, shouldn't pick a side either. Now, of course, when one side is hiring him or coercing him to say a prayer, an incantation, a klala, a curse of the other side, and he says this kind of a comment, what's their reaction going to be? Kill him. Okay, so whereupon the wicked Jews stood about him, as soon as he made this prayer, they stoned him to death. Now, that is the Josephan version of how Choni died. Of course, what's the rabbinic literature version of how Choni died? That he was the Rip Van Winkle of Judaism, that, he, that he, he, uh, he slept for 70 years, he woke up, he saw the carob tree, and the guy planting the carob tree, uh, for, but it wasn't really him, it was his grandson, and then he went to the yeshiva, and said, I'm Choni, and they didn't believe him, and nobody was alive to remember who he was, so he said, God, if nobody's alive, who's my contemporary, I'd rather be dead, and he died. So he prayed for his own death, and that was the, a, a more benign version of how he went. So that's one sin, that the, the, uh, the, the Hyrcanus army was willing to kill a man of God to secure their victory and defeat the, um, the people inside the city. Now let's go to the, the story that appears in rabbinic literature, and this, this appears multiple times uh, involving different generations and different characters, but it's most likely um, placed here in this story. Okay. The Yilamer Adam et Beno Yivanit. There is a passage in the Mishnah that says you shouldn't teach your son Greek. And we've discussed this in the past, uh, the business of secular education and how there were exceptions carved out for those who were involved in diplomatic service in the house of Gamliel. But there's a Mishnah that says you shouldn't teach your son Greek. Why? So they offer the following story to justify this law. Tanu Rabbanan, Rabbis learned in Abraisa, when the, uh, the kings of the Hasmonean dynasty were at loggerheads, they were attacking each other, Hyrcanus was on the outside of the city, and Aristobulus was on the inside of the city. Every day, um, the people on the inside would hoist a bucket of dinars over the top, over the side, to the outside world, and those on the outside would hoist a, a, a sheep for the, the, the daily sacrifices to the inside. How many sheep do you need every day? So you need two. One in the morning, one in the afternoon. And since the city was lacking uh, any and all supplies, they had to bribe at very high cost uh, even to just get these two animals on a daily basis. And it was a priority because of the theory that as long as the sacrifices are offered, the city of Jerusalem will not fall. That the, uh, the Avodat Beit HaMikdash will serve as a protective mechanism for the people in the city of Jerusalem. Okay. Hayasham Zakenecha, there was one old man, who was familiar with the, the Greek tongue and the Greek wisdom, and he whispered uh, to the, uh, the heathens in the Greek tongue, and he said to them, So long as these people in the city of Jerusalem are involved in the sacrificial service, they're doing their, uh, their daily obligation, they will not fall into your hands. And who's you? Who's you? The army of Hyrcanus. But the army of Hyrcanus was basically a mercenary Gentile army full of Arabs and Nabataeans. Who? This guy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was paid. I mean, he, he did, nobody offers advice for free. So, 
So Lamachar, the next day, Shilshulu Lahem Dinarim Bakupa, the guys on the inside hoisted over the bucket full of gold coins, and instead of a sheep, they, they uh, lifted up a, a pig, a chazir. Okay? Once the pig got halfway up the wall, Nazi Panav, uh, the pig stuck its fingernails into the wall. And the land of Israel shook 400 parsangs by 400 parsangs, meaning the whole Eretz Israel shook. It was like the shot heard around the world. It was such a chutzpah to do this that, it, that everybody was, was, was shaking from it. Otasha Amru, in that very moment they said, Aru Adam, cursed be the person, Shigadel Chazirim, who grows pigs in Eretz Yisrael, so you can't do that. And Aru Adam, cursed be the person, Shilamed Benel Chachmayavani, to teach their child uh, Greek wisdom. So, uh, certain things were, were derived from this story. Now, the, the, a similar version of this story appears at the end of the Second Temple period, with the siege around the city in the days of Vespasian and Titus. Uh, when did this story actually happen? Did it ever actually happen? My guess is it probably happened in this instance, not in the case of Vespasian and Titus. Okay. Um, so these are the sins of Hyrcanus's army uh, as they're trying to conquer the city. But the brothers um, find that the war is dragging on longer than they would like. Who do you turn to to settle this dispute? Who can you turn to to settle this Hasmonean dispute? Civil war. Rome. Okay. So Rome is in the, in the process of devouring the last vestiges of the Seleucid kingdom, the old Syrian uh, Macedonian kingdom. And Scarus, who will later go on to become the governor of Judea, is now the legate in Syria. And is uh, the, 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 ar- the arbitrator. They're going to turn to him to decide who wins this battle for the throne of Judea. And Scarus deci- sides with Aristobulus, having been bribed with 400 talents of silver. So as a good corrupt official like they all were, for the right price, you can win. Aritas, the Nabataean king, who was siding with Hyrcanus, was ordered and forced to withdraw under Roman pressure, and he lost badly, on his retreat, many, many uh, soldiers were, uh, were cut down. So here you have in the year 65-64, basically the end of the civil war, with Aristobulus winning, having held out against the siege, um, courtesy of Roman intervention. But then in 63, Pompey, the, con- the Roman conqueror of Asia, wants to bring Judea into Roman, to, to, to Roman, the Roman orbit. And like Antipater, he figured that a weak and pliable Hyrcanus would better suit Roman interests than an independent-minded Aristobulus. Aristobulus likes the idea of the independent Hasmonean Jewish state, and he'll fight and die for it if he has to. Hyrcanus is a a wuss, and so if you're Pompey and you want to take over, either completely or to create a vassal kingdom, you choose the weaker of the two parties— so he wants Hyrcanus. What happens? Well, three factions uh, from among the Jewish people send delegations to Pompey. The representatives of Hyrcanus, the representatives of Aristobulus, and the representatives of the Jewish people who are sick of the Hasmonean dynasty and would like to, uh, to see them disappear. They're disdainful of both brothers. This is a very famous episode in Jewish history. Very famous. Now, there are those nationalists 
good Zionists who, in the, in the last hundred years, have been critical of this third delegation of the Amcha of the people for basically having uh, given over Jewish independence to to the Gentiles, to the Romans, just because they didn't like the Prime Minister. It's like uh, you know saying that the state of Israel should be destroyed because you don't like Netanyahu. Well, what did the uh, these Jews actually say? Well, Josephus records it. The nation asked not to be ruled by a king, saying that it was the custom of their country to obey the priests of, of the God who was venerated by them, but that these two, who were descended from the priests, were seeking to change their form of government in order that they might become a nation of slaves. So the argument was this, that historically... Judea in the Second Commonwealth was a theocracy, a theocracy under the leadership of the Kohen Gadol, of the priesthood in general, and that there was no king, there was some kind of foreign overlord, and that the, this Hasmonean dynasty, who imposed kings upon them, was, was a, an illegitimate change in the form of government, was not desired by the people, and it's time to eliminate it. When you, when you say it in those terms, it doesn't sound as treasonous. It sounds like these are reasonable people who want to live a pious Jewish life and don't like that, that, that their, uh, their leaders have become Hellenized and corrupt and have turned them into a, a nation of slaves. So uh, it, it's not a, a, an unreasonable request. Who wins? What, is, what does Pompey decide? So at first, Pompey delays the decision. Because he doesn't want to alienate any faction. Certainly not those that have popular support. Given that he knows in the near future he's going to have Rome just waltz on into Judea and conquer it and take it uh, completely, he doesn't want to make too many enemies before that happens. So he delays the decision and tells everyone to hold off on any aggressive military moves. In other words, status quo, keep the peace, armistice. But... uh, this, uh, th- and this decision uh, of delay was despite the fact that, Al- that Aristobulus bribed him with 500 talents of silver and a golden vine. Um, so Aristobulus had a lot of money to offer multiple bribes, yet it didn't always work. Sometimes giving, you know, paying, the, pa- paying money doesn't, doesn't, doesn't win you the, uh, the decision of the higher power. But Aristobulus being annoyed that he didn't get uh, the decision his way, contemplates resistance against Rome, and he leaves the meeting in a huff and a puff. And he goes to the fortress of Alexandrion, um, thinking that he's going to uh, offer real resistance, real military resistance to, to Rome. But that's an absurdity. He's, uh, he's pressed further, he capitulates, and gives up the, uh, the fortress at Alexandria, and races to Jerusalem to offer resistance in Jerusalem, thinking that maybe the holy city will hold out. But he's pressed a little further, and he realizes that even Jerusalem couldn't hold out against the Romans. So what does he do? He walks out of the city, and goes into the enemy camp, and says that Pompey can have all the gold of Jerusalem, the gold of the temple, if the hostilities were to stop. In other words... We'll pull on Antiochus IV here. Remember what happened in 169 when Antiochus IV came to Jerusalem? He sacked the temple and took all the gold. And, and he left the temple intact, and only two years later uh, began the cult of, uh, of idolatry, of, of Odazara. But sometimes it's enough to make the, the Gentile king happy if you just give up the temple gold, because there's a lot of it. I mean, remember, 
the implements are made out of gold, and there's the machatzita shekel, which was gold. Now, was the machatzita shekel gold or silver? Silver, right? Silver, kesef. But in fact, it was gold. Why was it gold? Because the money changers would convert silver into gold since gold uh, is more expensive per ounce and you'd have to carry less on the journey from the diaspora to, to Jerusalem. So much of the, the coinage in the temple was not kesef, it was zahav. So here you have very precious metal available to be given over to the, the heathen king. He says, you want it, it's yours. Just don't conquer the city. That's the last gasp attempt of a good nationalist to preserve Jewish control over the Jewish city, over the capital city. But Pompey isn't interested in the gold. Just like, he didn't take, just like he didn't allow the bribe to give a victory to Aristobulus, he's not going to allow the offer of gold to uh, con- con- do, convince him to walk away. After a brief siege, where the Jewish patriots in Jerusalem um, fight hard, the siege is successful and Rome takes the city. And at the victory celebration in Rome in the year 61, Aristobulus was forced to march in front of Pompey's chariot, like Haman walking in front of Mordecai's chariot, right out of the book of Esther. So Aristobulus was taken as a prisoner, where he would remain a prisoner for the next few years. Uh, a VIP, you know, treated under you know, house arrest as an important figure, but a prisoner nonetheless. So what does... Um, what about so what, is, what happens to Hyrcanus, exactly? Hyrcanus is established as, re-established as the high priest, and as the political leader of the Jews but no longer in an, a truly independent state of Judea, but rather in a vassal state under Roman domination with governors uh, in the various provinces that used to be part of the Jewish state. So what happens is the Hasmonean kingdom was pretty large. It encompassed not only Judea, but Samaria, the coastal cities, the Galilee, the Golan Heights, the Transjordanian regions, Idumea, all those non-Judean sections of the Jewish state are now going to be uh, parceled out to uh, either independent polises, independent city-states, or administrative districts under direct Roman rule, but no longer under Jewish rule, even though there's a considerable Jewish population in some of these regions, they're no longer under Jewish rule, and the, the residual or the rump Jewish state that is in the, the core of Judea, surrounding Jerusalem, that will remain under Hyrcanus with nominal political power and full ecclesiastical power. He's the high priest and he's the ethnic leader of the Jews. Okay, that situation will obtain from 63 until 57. In 57, uh, Hyrcanus will be stripped of any political power uh, under Gabinius, the, the, the governor of Syria, who then makes administrative districts and appoints new leaders, and basically the old aristocracy uh, loses out. But Hyrcanus remains high priest uh, all the way uh, until the year 40. Okay. Um, the, The change from independent Judean kingdom to vassal state of Rome was a big shock to the system. The Jews were very troubled by this. And yes, there were those who didn't want the Hasmoneans to be in control anymore, but the notion that God gave the Jews an independent kingdom for a period of time of about 80 years and then took it away changes the, the, uh, the eschatology and uh, maybe even the theology to a certain extent. 
In the year 142-141 BCE, when Simon is declaring freedom from the Seleucids, what might a Jew think? What era have we arrived at? End of days, the Messianic era. Okay, the, the, there, there was no thought of a Jewish kingdom being reestablished and then disappearing. I mean, today, if Mashiach would come and there'd be a third base Amikdash, does anyone think it'll be destroyed? And there'll be a, a, a return to you know, British or, or Arab or Turkish rule over Eretz Israel? No. Uh, you know, in 1973, Moshe Dayan uh, telegrammed uh, Golda Meir in the first day of the war, saying that the third temple is about to fall. The third temple is about to fall. You know, nuke the, nuke the Egyptians, uh, because he viewed the, the, the state of Israel as, as the temple uh, in his secular mindset. But we don't. Ha- but Rav Goren said we ha- we don't have a tradition of the third temple ever falling. So in our minds, messianic times, are, if, if they ever come upon us, will not be reversed. So from a, a second temple point of view, in the days of the Hasmoneans, they're not thinking about a third temple and a 2,000 year exile. They're thinking that if God reasserts Jewish control over things, this is the end of days. This is the way we're going to ride out into the sunset. And now what? The Romans are in control and there's no more Jewish state, independent Jewish state? That's very disturbing from a religious point of view. Of course, the, the solution will be over the next uh, 100 years uh, uh, including the era of Jesus, to have all sorts of messianic claimants uh, who say, well, we're going to quickly reverse the Roman takeover, the Roman domination, and once again have the kingdom of God. That's why you have a lot of false messiahs over the next hundred years under Romans. Um, but it's really a shocking thing that there in, uh, no longer is Jewish, uh, Jewish independence. Okay. Um, what happens to Aristobulus? Well, in the, 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 the Pharisaic or rabbinic tradition, we can readily understand why Aristobulus' defeat and his being taken into captivity was seen as him getting his just desserts. After all, he had aligned himself with the Sadducees and had um, undone some of the advances of Pharisaic halakha that were, that were uh, achieved during Salome's reign. So he's a bad guy in terms of the sectarian conflict within Jewry. And so when he, de- when he gets defeated, well, that's because he deserved it. He was a Russia, a Russia. Where do we see this in the literature? So in the, the Psalms of Solomon. What are the Psalms of Solomon? So the Psalms of David are the book of Tehillim. The, uh, that's in the Bible. The Psalms of Solomon is an apocryphal book in, the New, in, in the, uh, some versions of the New Testament, but not in, in our Bible. Uh, the, Psalm, the Psalm of Solomon, chapter 2, says the following. When the sinner waxed proud, with a battering ram he cast down fortified walls, and thou didst not restrain him. So this is referring to Aristobulus's takeover, hostile takeover in 67, of uh, Jerusalem and ousting Hyrcanus. Alien nations ascended thine altar. And as a result of this, what happened? Eventually a Roman takeover. So the alien nation is going to the Mizbeach. They trampled it proudly with their sandals because the sons of Jerusalem had defiled the holy things of the Lord, had profaned with iniquities the offerings of God, in that the sacrificial service as performed by the Sadducees has certain anti-halachic elements. Most famously, the, the, the Sadducees claim you can, you can donate a korban tamid. According to the, the Prushim, you can't do that. It has to come from communal funds. But in many, many ways, the Sadducean halacha is different from what we would, uh, what we would accept. So, 
because they did wrong vis-à-vis the sacrificial service, the enemy trampled into the temple. There are legends about what Pompey did when he got to the temple. Uh, the most famous of which is often recalled on Tishabov, that like uh, uh, Titus would do 165 years later, he went to the Holy of Holies and shredded the curtain, and blood spread it out of the curtain, to, uh, indicating that he had defeated and killed the Jewish God. The, the Jewish God was bleeding. Now, that is, of course, a, a, a legendary remark, but there may be an element of truth to it. Why would there be blood on the curtain? No. Because of what sacrifice? Because of the Kohen Gadol, yes. Because the Hazayot, the sprinkling on the, 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 the parochet with the blood of the Parvisair. Um, so, yes, the curtain of the Holy of Holies was bloody. It wasn't the blood of a, of, a, of a corporeal god being slain. It was the blood of animal sacrifices of years past. But that's what Pompey supposedly did. He had total disrespect for um, the rules governing who could enter into the temple. Remember, there was the, the chel uh, and the sorig, the, fe- the lower lattice fence around the outer courtyard uh, beyond which a Gentile was not supposed to cross. And they, you know, the, the archaeologists have found the the the, uh, the, the uh, sign saying, you know, "Gentiles do not pass this uh, this this line." He went past it, so he did wrong. He offended our sensibilities, and therefore uh, we'll uh, speak negatively of him in hindsight. So, but let's go back to the Psalms of Solomon. So, this uh, sinner who was Aristobulus allowed the the aliens to trample into the temple. Therefore, he said, meaning God, cast them far from me. That, they'll go, that this sinner will go far, far away from, from God. Where is God? God is in Jerusalem, the God of Jerusalem. So what's far away from Jerusalem? Rome. He'll be a prisoner in Rome. Uh, it was set at naught before God. It was utterly dishonored. The sons and daughters were in grievous captivity. So the family of Aristobulus and he himself go into captivity. Sealed was their neck, branded among the nations. Okay, so this is a, a poetic version of the punishment that uh, was uh, upon Aristobulus. But we must realize that being sent into captivity is not always the end of someone's political career. If you're dead, you're dead. But if you're not dead, it ain't over till it's over. All right? So Yogi would have uh, gotten along with Aristobulus. As a VIP uh, prisoner in Rome, with friends in Rome who may have an axe to grind against Pompey, and remember, the leadership situation in Rome was very fluid throughout the 50s and 40s of uh, the the first century BCE. Remember, Julius Caesar is assassinated in 44, uh, and he's not the only one to to die a a, a gruesome death in the leadership class. There are several civil wars that happen, and people don't like Pompey. He's part of the the, the original triumvirate, but that, won't, that triumvirate won't last long. So Aristobulus, as a useful tool in the hands of the enemies of Pompey, has friends in Rome, and he also has loyal soldiers back home in Judea who were willing to fight and die for him. The Sadducean warrior class, the, 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 uh, the landed gentry and the squires, who thought that Hyrcanus was a wimp and that the, didn't like the Pharisees, they like Aristobulus. So if you have friends back home, and you have friends near the prison where you're being held captive, what is there a possibility of? Escape. Escape, exactly. So, there were three attempts uh, at escape, all of which basically failed, but to a greater or lesser extent. In 57, 
Chapo. Okay. Yeah. So in 57, um, Antigonus, Antigonus, who is the son of Aristobulus, now the, name, the names are going to get a little difficult because there was a previous Antigonus who was the brother of, of Aristobulus I. Now you have another Antigonus who is the son of Aristobulus II. Okay, and the nephew of Hyrcanus. Antigonus, who was in captivity in Rome with his father, escapes in the year 57, gets to Judea, raises an army, and causes trouble to the point that Gabinius, the, the local uh, uh, governor, has to uh, crack down hard on the dissident factions, and, as a result of the upheaval, strips Hyrcanus of any political authority and reorganizes the political life in Judea, um, making Hyrcanus only the high priest. But Antigonus loses. He doesn't have enough local support to defeat the Romans. Nobody will ever again defeat the Romans. Um, so certainly not a kid, who's probably a teenager at that point, um, coming to a, a renegade army of a few thousand guys, they're not going to defeat the Roman legion. Then in the year 56, Aristobulus himself breaks free, he escapes, and does the similar thing, tries to defeat Hyrcanus and, and oust the Romans, without success. In 55, Antigonus again escapes and tries to effect uh, uh, some kind of political change. But they all fail. And, they, and, and they're sent back to captivity in Rome. In 49, Aristobulus and Antigonus are um, released from captivity by Julius Caesar. As I said, Rome was undergoing its own chaos and Pompey and Caesar were mortal enemies. And the hope was that Aristobulus, being a, a, an enemy of, of Pompey, will go to Judea and wreak havoc over there and cause uh, da- and, and inflict damage upon Pompey's army. That's what Julius Caesar was hoping for. But Pompey's uh, spies in Rome found out about this, and they poisoned Aristobulus to death before he even had a chance to leave Rome in 49. And, and, and Antigonus, um, well, actually, and, and one of the other, not Antigonus, but one of the other sons uh, was uh, decapitated in Antioch a year later on his way towards uh, Judea to cause trouble. So the, the, the family of, of Aristobulus was largely eliminated with only one person surviving uh, to fight another day in the year 40, um, which we'll talk about next week. Now, what happens to Hyrcanus? Hyrcanus is the Kohen Gadol, but without any real political power. Is he liked by the people? Yes, for the most part. He's a sort of the lovable old high priest who never, never goes away. And he... He is easily manipulated by Antipater. Antipater is basically controlling the politics of Judea all throughout the 50s of the first century BCE. And what Antipater does is to position his sons in sensitive uh, military posts as governors of provinces and as as, um, leaders of the army. And Antipater's most important son is Herod. So Herod is the leader of the, of the army faction in the Galilee, and he causes a lot of trouble in the 40s, is accused of murder, is brought before the Sanhedrin, and according to rabbinic legend, 
only survives his encounter with the Sanhedrin because he threatens with death all the members of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin capitulates with the only person standing up to him being Shemaya, uh, of Shemaya and Aftalion fame, of the fourth generation of Zugot, of paired leaders. So, here you have an existing Jewish state that is a vassal state of Rome, that is controlled nominally by a Hasmonean high priest, but in fact by an Idumean um, politician with, Idumean, with half Idumean, half Nabataean sons who occupy positions in the army and are bossing around the Jews and the local Jewish population. So all in all, from a Jewish point of view, the situation is not very good. Not very good. And this is why, in hindsight... Although Hyrcanus was a friend of the Pharisees, we don't look upon them, you know, for, in posterity as having. We don't look upon Hyrcanus as having been a good guy. We look upon him as having been inept and incompetent, uh, and Aristobulus as having been overly ambitious. And because of the ineptitude of Hyrcanus and the ambition of Aristobulus, the Jewish state ceased to be. So, if we go back to the Gemara that spoke about the siege, what did it say? It doesn't speak in terms of Russia and Sadik, good guy and bad guy. Typically, these wars are all about who's, who's good and who's bad, at least in the eyes of whoever wrote history, because history is written by the winners. Instead, it's When you ever say what does that mean? That both sides are equally good or equally bad. We're not going to pick a, a, a favorite here. Even though the Pharisees had a favorite in the moment, years later, when you look back upon things, was any of them, were any of them good? No. They both stink. That's the way you have to read the, the rabbinic literature, uh, not in the moment, but in hindsight. Okay, now, next week, what we're going to discuss is what was the nature of the reorganization of the Judean political life in the 50s and 40s when it was a vassal state, and then how exactly does Herod take over? Because um, there will be a conquest of Judea by some group that will defeat the Romans. But it isn't the Jews. We're going to see it's the Parthians. The Parthians, or the Persians, make a, a, a run at the Roman Empire in a time of, of, of uh, Roman chaos, and for a very brief moment, conquer the, uh, the city of Jerusalem and most of the countryside, and are willing to reimpose the Judean monarchy for a very brief time. And where does Hyrcanus fit into that Judean monarchy? And how does he ultimately die? Because as with almost everybody in this story, if they live to the point in time where Herod is powerful, Herod will kill them. So stay to, uh, So next week there is no class.